Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel and podcast, where we explore the Gospels and the Jesus traditions within their Jewish context. In this video, we will look at Jesus within his messianic worldview of those around him. In the previous two videos, we traced the Messiah traditions from its origins in the Hebrew Bible up until the time of Jesus. And in this third video, we were going to talk more about Jesus and, and see him as much as we can through the eyes of the people who associated with him or through the eyes of the Gospels, however you want to put it. But that's what we'll do to try to contextualize him a little bit more in this messianic worldview. So follow me. Let's go to Jerusalem. to keep in mind as we discuss these terms, as we have discussed them and as, the, as this discussion moves on, is that Christians today and for centuries have confused the terms Son of Man and Son of God. We talked about these terms in a previous video in this series, and we defined Son of Man and Son of God. But it's, it's important to note that Christians, even within two or three hundred years of Jesus, thought that the Son of Man term meant Jesus's humanness, that referred to his humanness, and that the Son of God, that term Son of God, referred to his divinity. It's easy to confuse those because the, even the word God within the Son of God title seems to suggest divinity. But as we have shown, it, it was exactly opposite. The Son of Man term referred to deity or someone who was like deity, who had divine qualities, someone who looked like a human being that, but that would come alongside God and come in the clouds. And then that the Son of God is a human term. This is a term referring to the King of Israel, where God calls the King of Israel a son. And the truth shall set you free. Now, we did talk about how different peoples in the ancient Near East saw their king as divine. So that's a little bit confusing, although in ancient Israel, there's not a lot of evidence that they actually saw him as uh, so the king, like King David, as someone who took on divine qualities. It's probably more the case that God adopted the king into the family of deity, or this is metaphorical court language or something. But that's what those two terms meant. And then the, the church fathers, those people who the, the, the writers and theologians and leaders of the early Christian church got those confused. The Gospel of Mark actually corrects this or puts the meaning back into what it was originally meant to be. So, for example, Mark refers to, in chapter 1, refers to the Son of God, showing Jesus' human nature. But then when we get into chapter 2, he starts using the Son of Man term, showing his divine and redeemer nature. Also, the king uh, or the high priest, when Jesus was brought before the high priest, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Again, he's equating Messiah, a kingly term, with Son of God. In Mark 13, verse 26, it says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Again, here it helps us see the original meaning that the Son of Man is associated with power, glory, coming in the clouds, like deity. Also, Mark 14, verse 61, 62 says, Again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So again, this is a term, uh, Son of Man, that's in this context showing more of divine qualities. Okay, so there's that. Now, uh, another question that we need to ask that I actually deal with my students in the classroom is, did Jesus refer to himself as the Messiah? Is this a term that he embraced during his ministry? Well, there's, uh, it doesn't appear to be. No, 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 how about no? Now, let me give you this data. One time that he appears to his non-apostles or encounters somebody who's a non-apostle is the Samaritan woman at the well. The woman claimed that she was waiting for the Messiah. And when she said that, Jesus replied in John 4, 26, he replied, I am he. So it seems that he's not, it doesn't seem, it's, it's, it's clear that he's outright stating I'm the Messiah. So that there's one case where he does. Now, the other case where he encounters a non-disciple is the high priest. And when Jesus was in private communication with him, the high priest asked Jesus if, if he's the Messiah. Now in Mark, Jesus acknowledges outright that he is the Messiah. This is Mark 14, 61. But if we compare Mark with Matthew and Luke of the same episode, in Matthew, Jesus doesn't, does not respond and say, yes, I'm the Messiah. What he says is, you have said so, in Matthew 26, 64. In other words, this language suggests that Jesus is saying, that's the way you're putting it. You are saying this. I didn't say that. You said it. So again, even in Matthew, he's kind of, yes, alluding to I'm the Messiah, but it's a little bit more cryptic. By the time we get to Luke, Jesus does not answer the question. Jesus says in Luke 22, 67 and 68, he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you won't answer. So in other words, he's saying, I'm not going to get in this discussion because you won't have a discussion. You won't believe the answer that I give. And then if I ask you a question, you won't give me an answer back. So you're not willing to have a, a discussion here about this. So I'm not going to answer it. And so here, even in this episode, it's a little bit vague. Do we take Mark, where Jesus says outright, I'm the Messiah, or do we take Luke, where he won't answer the question? Some other examples. So Nathaniel, early in Jesus's ministry, comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, are you the son of God? Are you the king of Israel? Again, he's asking specifically about the Messiah, because these two terms are messianic. And Jesus answers, do you... Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Again, Jesus kind of hedges a little bit. He doesn't just answer the question, yes, I am the Son of God, the King of Israel. Also, near the end of Jesus' ministry, Peter, so Jesus asks Peter, and he asks all the people who are there, who do people say that I am? What's the rumors about me? What are people saying? And then, and then they answer, and then he, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Now, Jesus seems to affirm that that's true, but he, but right after that, he just it says he strictly warned them not to tell anyone. So even if we take this passage as, as, as evidence that Jesus embraces his messianic role or he's outright stating, yes, I'm the Messiah, even then he doesn't want to tell anybody. So even in these few cases in the Gospels where he acknowledges that he is the Messiah. He's either alone with a Samaritan woman or alone with the high priest or tells his apostles not to tell anybody. Scholars refer to this as the messianic secret. Not only does he not want people to tell him 
tell, tell them that he's the Messiah or that he's not willing to state outright. But he also tells people not to go around and tell them that they were healed by Jesus. Whenever he does one of these healings or says certain things, he says, be quiet, don't tell anybody that I did this. The problem is the apostles do tell people and it says his, his fame spread quickly. Something else to note uh, that in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says that a large crowd came to Jesus and was, quote, was about to come and take him by force to make him king. And then it says that Jesus immediately fled into the mountains by himself. He didn't want any part of that. So the question is, why did Jesus not want to be associated or was hesitant to be associated with the term Messiah? Well, obviously, as we've shown in previous episodes, this word had taken on a lot of baggage from previous centuries. And it's possible that Jesus, not necessarily rejecting the idea that he is the Messiah, but he's uncomfortable with that term. In fact, the most commonly used term describing Jesus, even by Jesus himself, in terms, at least how the Gospels portray, is the Son of Man. That term is much more popular for Jesus. Um, okay, so let's go through a few more things to get an idea of how people saw the Messiah or what they had hoped. So at Caesarea Philippi, toward the end of Jesus's ministry, when Jesus told his apostles that he has to go to Jerusalem and be killed, Peter takes Jesus aside, and in Matthew 16, 22, he says, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. Also in Luke, after Jesus dies, two apostles, two non-apostles who are walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem, it says they were saddened. They were very sad. Jesus appears to him, but they he was in disguise. They didn't know it was Jesus. And they told you, Jesus says, what's wrong with you? Why are you sad? And they said, we have, we have hoped that our great prophet, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. This is Luke 24, 13 through 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In Matthew, also, some of Jesus' apostles, this is after the resurrection, they doubted. It says they doubted after they met the resurrected Jesus. This is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. It doesn't tell us the nature of their doubt. It doesn't say that they doubted that it was really Jesus. It could have been that could have been the doubt. But what they were still seems that they were worried about or confused about is that he is still the Messiah. And is he coming back to redeem Israel? Like what's going on here? It was, it was confusing to them of how these events took place. And if we couple that with the book of Acts in chapter one, when Jesus comes to the apostles for the first time, the very first question they ask or the first statement, it wasn't, wow, Jesus, you're here. And uh, how did this happen? You're resurrected. It wasn't any anything like that. The very first thing they say is, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, their whole worldview is wrapped up in this expectation of a Messiah coming to redeem Israel. That's, their, that's in everything that they were anticipating and thinking about. Also in Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that the, the crucifixion of Jesus 
is a stumbling block to Jews. This is a scandalon, is what he calls it in Greek, scandalon. This is a scandal. This is a, is a stumbling block to Jews. They just can't, the Jewish world was not prepared from, at least from their sacred texts of the Hebrew Bible, they were not prepared for a Messiah who would be killed and humiliated, subdued, and defeated by his enemies. Another question that I have for my students is that if Jesus's identity was unclear to those closest to him, including his family, right? If you remember his family, they thought he was nuts, according to Mark. They came to Peter's mother-in-law's house. They, they told Jesus to come out. It says because they thought he was crazy. And then that's when Jesus uh, sort of ignored them. So even his family wasn't, some of his family members might not have been quite sure of who Jesus is, what his identity, what's his mission. If that's true, if, it's, if his identity is unclear to those closest to him, then what does that tell us about his ministry? Well, what that tells us is that Jesus wasn't clear. He didn't spell it out for everybody. And if he did, they didn't understand it. So we have to keep that in mind. And, and we have to, when we read the New Testament, we have to realize that there are some vague parts. There's some, there's some a miscommunication somewhere. And the people around Jesus aren't putting all the pieces together. It's not because they were stupid. It's because they, Jesus didn't, maybe just didn't spell it out for them. Okay, so also let's talk a little bit about the last week of Jesus's life. The accounts dealing with the last week and the immediate aftermath of his death are illustrated for understanding messianic expectations, both of the first century broadly and of Jesus's messiahship specifically. When Jesus entered the vicinity of Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, he went first to the Mount of Olives. By the first century, the Mount of Olives was entrenched within Jewish messianic lore. Jesus' first act after arriving on the mount, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, was obtaining a donkey. This was a deliberate act that was meant to highlight Jesus' messiahship. So how, how, how do we know this? Well, Matthew 21 quotes Zechariah 9 from the Hebrew Bible, and this is what it says. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a, do on a donkey and on a colt. Okay, so the king is coming, the Messiah, and he's going to be riding on a donkey and a colt. The key word here is king. The notion that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey reflects earlier Israelite precedent. So, for example, according to Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11, the future ruler of the tribe of Judah will bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt, to the choice vine. Again, we get two different animals, and then Zechariah picks up on this, and then so does the author of Matthew. Israel's kings, David and Solomon, also rode donkeys on the Mount of Olives in relation to their roles as king. You can read about this in 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 and 2. Solomon specifically rode his donkey down the Kidron Valley, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives, where he was anointed king over Israel. This is in 1 Kings chapter 1, 32 through 37. King Solomon's royal procession was accompanied by people who were shouting, Long live King Solomon! Similarly, Jesus' followers held a procession for him as he rode the donkey from the Mount of Olives to the east gate of Jerusalem. This is in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19, also John 12. While this procession was happening, the crowd shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the Son of David! Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Here, Jesus' followers undoubtedly had messianic expectations in mind. 
at least according to how the tradition has been preserved in the Gospels. Jesus's procession from the Mount of Olives to the east gate of Jerusalem was deliberate. It was based on passages in Ezekiel and Zechariah. According to these texts, a messianic figure will descend from heaven to the summit on the Mount of Olives and enter Jerusalem. This is specifically Ezekiel 43 and Zechariah 14. So once Jesus entered Jerusalem via the East Gate, he cleanses the temple as prescribed in Zechariah 14.21. Jesus' activities are similar to the three-part structure in Zechariah 14, referring to the future divine messianic figure. So in Zechariah, number one, first stage is the Messiah arrives on the Mount of Olives, comes from heaven, touches down on the Mount of Olives. After that, he pronounces judgment on Israel. And then stage three, he enters Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. So Zechariah 14, it seems, might have served as a type of guide, like a guidebook, to Jesus' messianic activity on the Mount of Olives. Cleansing the temple was an act of rebellion that set Jesus on a collision course with the temple establishment and Roman authorities, who saw him, probably like other messianic figures in the first century, saw him as a, a rabble-rousing messiah aspirant who, who must be punished, must be silenced. Jesus also pronounced judgment upon Jerusalem multiple times during the last week of his ministry. While on the Mount of Olives, he said to Jerusalem, These days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts of, around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another. This is Luke 19, uh, 43 and 44. He also, if you remember, cursed a fig tree in Mark 11, which according to earlier Israelite texts was a symbol of Judah, of the nation of, of kingdom of Judah and Israel. It, so in Micah 7 and Jeremiah 8, they compare Israel and Judah with a fig tree, a fig tree being a symbol. What this tells us is that Jesus' cursing of the fig tree on the Mount of Olives near Beit Faji, that town, the village, which means, Beit Faji means house of unripe figs. This was a pronouncement of judgment upon Jerusalem and Israel. A third pronouncement was embedded in Jesus' so-called Olivet Discourse, what some people call the Olivet Discourse, the Discourse on the Mount of Olives. This discourse included prophecies of the temple's destruction, there were wars, famines, persecution, desolation, coming of the Son of Man, and also several parables of judgment. You can read about this in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. The last pronouncement of judgment was when Jesus was at the temple in the temple complex, and he, he dared to prophesy of the temple's destruction in the presence of the temple priests. Mark, this is Mark 11, Mark 14, and, and uh, John chapter 2. So we get some of these, and this is very important to know what Jesus is doing, that this is going to put crosshairs on his back, so to speak, if he's doing these things. Jesus' activities during the few days leading up to his arrests demonstrates that he satisfied several messianic expectations prescribed in Jewish texts in the two centuries before Jesus' ministry. He was viewed, most likely by his followers, as the divine figure in Zechariah 14. People worshipped him as he entered Jerusalem. They referred to him as king and son of David. He pronounced judgment upon Israel. His activities suggested his status of judge and new leader of Israel. Like many of his contemporary messianic figures that we talked about in the last episode, Jesus was arrested, mocked, and punished 
by the authorities for being a Messiah or King of the Jews. In fact, that phrase, that title, King of the Jews, is probably the first literature, the first thing ever written about Jesus and placed on his plaque and put over the cross, King of the Jews, that's his. That's the crime. Romans would put the crime so that people walking by and seeing these uh, crucified thieves or criminals, they would see the crime above the cross of thief or, you know, in this case, King of the Jews. That's the crime. That's all for this series and this video. Check out the other videos in this YouTube channel. Also check out the recent book that I published called A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. Also check uh, with the, the podcast, The Strangers in Jerusalem podcast, and you'll get other details both in the book and in the podcast and in the other videos, more details in depth about Jesus as a Jew.